I appreciate our worship team and the work they put into leading us in worship. Um, it is is a powerful idea that we don't have to be enslaved to fear. And it's a powerful idea that you don't have to be enslaved to anxiety. You don't have to be enslaved to anger. Do you ever just get angry and you don't want to be angry, but you've been so hurt or so wronged that you just, you're just mad? And you want to let it go, but sometimes it's just difficult to let it go. Does anyone ever struggle with that? You don't have to be enslaved anger. In the world that we live in, we're incredibly divided. Um, We're very excited about a new election season coming up, um, as I know you are as well. And so that really brings our nation together for us to love on each other for common purpose and common goals and just to demonstrate how much we mean to each other. So we're super excited about that. But you don't have to be enslaved to the division that this world just brings on to us all the time. And if you're a person who doesn't want to be enslaved to those things, and if you're a person that does want freedom, and you want, you're a person that wants to live not out of fear of what could go wrong, but out of hope of what is going right, well, I have good news for you. And that is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. It's what we're going to talk about today. And next week, we're going to wrap up um, we're going through the story of the prodigal son. Some of you asked me this morning, hey, this sounds a lot like the prodigal God by Tim Keller. And I will say, yes, it does. Um, there's a number of contemporary, he just passed away, but he's still contemporary. There is a number of contemporary theologians, pastors, Christians, who recognize in many ways we've gotten the prodigal son wrong. Maybe we haven't gotten it wrong, but we've missed a whole lot of what was right. (laughs) And so last week we talked about the younger son. And as we looked at the story of the younger son, what we discovered is that you have the opportunity to live life completely focused on the way you want to live your own life. You don't have to have anyone tell you what to do. You can just go and explore um, whatever in this world you personally want to explore And what we discovered with the younger son is that most of the time, what that's going to lead to is a very self-focused, very selfish way of looking at the world. And you will burn out because you weren't created to live a life focused on self. It's not that self is wrong, but a focus on self outside of a focus on us and a focus on us with God, it leads to just the kinds of things that we want freedom from. It leads to fear, it leads to anxiety, it leads to anger, it leads to division. But there's an incredible opportunity that we have to be freed from that. But one of the things I shared last week, and I think we're going to spend quite a bit of time next week talking about this, are some of the, I, I won't say that they are um, in conflict with each other, but there are places in Scripture that we read and it feels like, okay, I understand how this salvation works, I understand how grace works, and then we read something else and we're like, now I'm not so sure. And I'm not so sure that these ideas can, can exist together in the same place. One of these comes from one of our proof texts about salvation. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast which we love that verse. And we often stop there because that is such a a filling, hopeful, grace-filled verse. But then it goes on in verse 10 and says, For 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith, so it's not of our works, but yet we are saved for works. And it seems like that one of the two of those we can really get excited about. I can really get excited that it's by grace and this is a free gift and this is about faith. Or I can actually get really excited about the works because if it's about works, then you can give me a list. And you give me a list and I do those things and I'm good. And what ends up happening with the list is the list becomes the ticket by which we get to go to heaven and our hope that all the things we don't experience in this earth will eventually get to experience when we die in heaven. And that to me is not a fulfilling idea of heaven if I have to wait till I die to get it. So I shared a little bit last week about living eternal life. The eternal life is our life now and forevermore. It's a quality of life. It's not a time of life. It's, it's both in some ways. But as we look through how the Old Testament authors talked about eternal life, as we look through the first century rabbis talked about eternal life, they were talking about a way of living life and a way of experiencing life, not just what happens when you die, but we have a tendency to focus because we are a very trans <coughs> transactional culture. I want something better. I will give you something to get it. And we do that in the way we live our lives. We do that in the way we try to attain our jobs and get our educations. Um, we sometimes do that in our relationships with each other. What do you have to offer me? If you've ever had a friend that, you know, kind of a, what have you done for me lately kind of friend, you understand how really horrible transactional friendship can really be. This idea of, kind of unconditional love and acceptance is something that we kind of get nervous about because I can give you unconditional love and acceptance if it's by about grace. But if it's about works, then I feel like I can't give you unconditional love and acceptance because uh, your works aren't lining up to the list that I have in front of me. And I'm working hard on my list. Are you working hard on your list? What ends up happening in this kind of transactional idea of salvation is then we begin determining, well, am I doing better on my list than you're doing on yours? And if I am, I want you to know it. And so we struggle through these kind of conflicting ideas at times, but they're really not in conflict at all. And I want to spend some time talking about the elder brother today just to show you the difference. And then we're going to take communion together because there is good news that is available to us. And Jesus wanted us to remember that that good news did come at a cost, but also it had an opportunity and to remember that through communion together. The story of the younger brother is the story of those that have no interest in life with God. No real interest in doing community with people that are anywhere different from them. It is a very self-focused idea for the younger brother. He wants his share of the inheritance. Um, the basics of the story, if you'll remember, an ancient Near Eastern culture, whenever the father would die, there was a succession of inheritance that would go to his sons. The oldest son would get a, a double portion of the inheritance, the younger sons and and on down would get a single portion. So if there are five brothers, then the oldest would get two-fifths of the inheritance, and every other brother would get one-fifth of the inheritance. In this story, we have two brothers, so the older brother gets two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger son gets one-third of the inheritance. Unfortunately for the older brother, he doesn't just get assets, he also gets two-thirds of the responsibility. And as we've read through the story, we find that this younger son, he's just not interested in, in the father. 
In fact, in that culture, in order to say, I want my inheritance, is tantamount to saying, I just don't want you, I want your stuff. You're not important to me. To me, you're as good as dead, but I want your stuff. And in order for him to get that one-third inheritance, for him to go into squander as the story goes, the father most likely had to liquidate some assets so that he could give him that one-third. And so now we have between these three men this interesting dynamic just based on how they're living life. And one is this, that what they had, they now have one-third less. The older brother is thinking, so now a third of everything I would have been a part of after dad died is gone. And what we know as we continue in the story is that he is unhappy about that. The story of the younger brother is incredibly important because it does teach us something about this good news of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus wanted to teach us. Some of the things I shared with you is that the gift of salvation really is a free gift. The son came back, and he came back not wanting to be taken back as a son, but he wanted to be taken back just as a hired hand, someone that could earn his spot back into the family. He could pay back his inheritance. One-third of all that the father had is now gone, and he now has nothing. The younger son has nothing, so he's coming back just to work and to try to restore that which he has taken. And instead of the father saying, sure, you can pay it off, here's the dollar amount that you need to pay back, He just willingly gives him a ring and a robe and he throws this massive party. And that's how our story ended last week, this massive party with a fatted calf in which the entire family, all of those that worked um, within this family, all of the, the, the slaves and the hired servants, we talked a little bit about slaves. Slavery was very different then um, than our kind of modern context and understanding of slavery, people that would be indentured, but then after a period of time would be set free with all of their earnings to help them because they just couldn't live on their own or couldn't make it on their own. But everyone was partying that the lost had been found. In the context of this story, we also discover that Jesus has already talked about another parable that is incredibly important just shortly before this one, and that is the parable of the lost sheep. Who would not leave the 99 to find the one lost? Just demonstrates the intent focus that God has for all people to find this thing that we're trying to define better ourselves than simply one day if you live a good enough life and you die, you'll get to go to heaven. It is not a compelling vision of the good news of Jesus Christ. But it has been compelling enough that most people in a modern Western understanding of faith still believe that's the good news that's why we can do all the things and check the boxes and yet our hearts never change we carry around all the same things we carried before we we live lives that are really no different than they were before and some of the things we discovered in this younger son is that the gift of salvation really is a free gift it's got to be seen as valuable something you want you know if i really want something i'm going to do something to get it I'm going to see value in it. But if we see no value in in doing life with God, then why in the world would we be interested or see this as good news? I challenge you that as you go out today, I said this last week, as you went out this past week, sharing the gospel is more than just sharing that Jesus died on the cross. Sharing the gospel is sharing the value in knowing God. There's a number of ways that we share the gospel. We tend to start with hell which Jesus never did. And instead, he starts with how good the Father is. 
do life with Him. We go through and we look at some of the different ideas of sin portrayed in Scripture. What we find is that in the Old Testament in Genesis, sin is described as a beast that's just crouching at your door, ready to pounce and devour you. But you have the ability to resist it. Paul talks about sin as something that enslaves us, takes something from us, traps us, and is something we can be freed from. The gift of salvation really is a free gift, but it has to be seen as valuable. This free gift can't be earned, but we do have to choose it. And this is what I kind of left you with last week. The good news is that no matter how broken or battered you are, the younger son was broken and battered. Jesus wants to fully restore you, and no matter how many bad choices you have made in your life, you are one choice away from a better life. The story doesn't stop here, even though for most of our tellings of the prodigal son, it does stop there. And it's a great picture for us within the church, sitting in these seats, for us to sing worship songs to God, to say, yes, those lost people need Jesus. The story continues, and we find that some of the people that sit in church services need Jesus too, and maybe don't have him as much as they thought they did. So there's a lot of ways we can go through this story. I'm going to try to go through as easily as I can, and this is not a story of being judgmental of Christians. This is a story of the difference between lost and being found. And there are people, and this is perhaps the greatest travesty in the church today, there are people that are absolutely sure they understand the gospel and they can be just as lost as the younger brother. Let's look at the story, Luke chapter 15, verse 25. We're not going to do the whole parable, but I do want to pick up with the older son. Look at the father's response. Talk a little bit about, well, so what, does, what are the implications for what does salvation mean here? And we're going to take communion together. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. This is the party the father's throwing. He's been out working, doing all the things he's supposed to do, checking off all the boxes on his list. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was devoured, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found the implication is that this older brother is as well and unfortunately we never get an opportunity to see how the older brother responds that's the end of the story and if you'll remember that when jesus teaches jesus doesn't just say you know what you know what would be good today when i go out and the crowds gather around me i should do this parable Um, about these two sons that's not the way jesus typically teaches jesus so fully understood the kingdom that whenever he was talking he would use whatever they would understand around them and so as we've said before 
if they're walking with the disciples and someone's throwing seed out planting a field he's going to give a parable about throwing seed out and planting a field he's going to talk about what it means to be in the kingdom walking through these green pastures he's probably walking through green pastures or if he's going to talk about these barren wastelands being pictures of being away from god he's probably walking beside a barren wasteland so they get the full image of what's happening and in the story of the prodigal son we have these this crowd gathering around him made up of of two groups of people he's trying to address with this story the irreligious group that's coming around and listening and they're fully identifying with the younger son this guy he's he's really interesting because he performs all these incredible miracles but I'm not sure I'm really in on what his message is, but I'm going to go give him an ear and listen. And this is the younger son he's talking to. And then we have another group that they're kind of the, the religious group of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who are gathering around, who just want to trip him up, who they know their scriptures. They can quote their scriptures. They spend all day in the scriptures, but their hearts are completely devoid of God within them. Miss the point. The older brother misses the point of the beauty of the fact that this son who was lost, his brother, has come back. Sometimes accountability, as we look at the father, is an invitation to experience freedom. And as we look at the story of the elder son, my hope is not that we call out who are the elder son in the room because... In some ways, we all are. But instead, to look at the freedom that the elder son is missing. So what does the father do? This is interesting as we look. And it says in verse 28 that he was angry and he refused to go in. And it says his father came out and entreated him. The word entreat means anxiously tried to convince. So it's not just a conversation that he has as he's going to get another pitcher of, of iced tea for the congregation that's joined this party but instead it's him entreating him anxiously trying to convince him don't go this way don't take this path this anger that's within you it enslaves you there's a beast crouching at your door and if you don't resist it will devour you he's entreating him to see that this is a good thing because the kingdom of god is made for people such as his younger brother and for him is all available to him. He entreats him. Interestingly, and this is a conversation that we'll dive into a little more next week, the father doesn't threaten to take away what is his. Now, this is interesting because he's saying that he's lost, but he's not saying because you're lost, I'm taking away the rest of the inheritance, which is his. So literally everything the father has is his because he doesn't have another brother to split the remaining inheritance with. Everything is his. And interestingly, he's not saying he's taking it away from them. He's also not saying he's taking the kingdom away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's an uncomfortable place for us to talk about next week. What does that mean? Father reminds him that to be lost is death and to be found is life. It's an interesting place to come into 
whatever season you're in and be able to breathe air and your heart is beating and you go from here to there and you do the things you're going to do within your life, but yet to then look in the mirror and say, I feel dead even when I'm alive. If Jesus really wanted us to make a list that we're all supposed to check and if we check it, we get the big gift at the end of our lives where we get to go to heaven, he would have given us a better list. And we went through the story of Genesis and we went through the story of, of Abraham's life and we see that, Abraham, that God walked both sides of that blood covenant saying, I am making a promise to you and I am committing that I will be the one to make sure it happens. Those are some uncomfortable things about what how God views us and how God views the kingdom of God because for us, we are so transactional. If I want this, then I do this. And just makes sense that in our faith, in our life, we go to God and we say, if you will do this, then I will do this. Or if I do this, will you do that? But true friendship, you know, doesn't lie in the what have you done for me lately world. It lies in the I just love you and I want what's best for you. It's good news. It is just so good. It is easy to miss. The older brother shows us the danger of doing religious things without knowing what it means to be truly saved. And this is not the only place we see this. If you're thinking, well, that's a, uh, you've got to kind of go around the, the bend to get to that understanding of what he's saying about the gospel, you, you don't have to go far to read this in other places in the Bible. Our Baymar group that meets on Wednesday nights, we're going through the prophets, which we're all very excited about. It's actually a really great study. And Isaiah, one of the prophets, you know, with chapter 1, verse 2, says this, the wickedness of Judah is the heading in my Bible. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What to me, verse 11, is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. As you go through the 
prophets, you find a constant focus of caring for those that cannot care for themselves, the idea of seeking true justice. What's interesting about this passage from Isaiah is all the things God says he can no longer endure and doesn't want are all the things he told them to do. Isn't that frustrating? Like, if your parents told you to do something and you're doing them, even though you're mad that you have to do them, and then the parents gets mad at you for doing those things, like you would feel uh, that was unjust, right? Well, you told me to do it, and I did it. I mean, I was grumbling the entire time and mad the entire time, and I stomped around the whole time. And But I did what you told me to do. It's kind of the heart of this group of people at this time. It's the heart of the older brother who's probably out doing the work that he's supposed to be doing while the whole time he's thinking what he would do to his younger brother if he ever saw him again. We can't work that field anymore because we had to sell it. It's no longer ours. Oh, what I would do to strangle his neck. Look at me. I'm here doing the work. Look at me. He's not even here to help. Look at me. He's taken away my inheritance. Look at me, look at me. I just can imagine these are the thoughts going through his mind because quite honestly, if I were the older brother, that's probably the thoughts that would be going through my mind, you know? I would be thinking about all the things that I would say if he was right there. I would have the perfect argument carved within my mind that if he showed up, I would let him have it and he would have no defense against all the things I would say to him. And I believe that's exactly where the elder brother was. He was doing the things he was supposed to do, but his heart missed the point of it all. This is how a person can spend their entire lives in a church and miss who Jesus is. Can miss what this gospel is about. I remember a very formational moment within my life as a pastor several years ago. I was serving in a church, and the church was growing, and we were doing lots of good things. But there was someone who kept fighting me all along the way. Every time we tried to do something for the community or for the people that were struggling, or he would just fight me. He was in a family who was a founding member of the church, which I don't know what your background is in family churches. Um, that's, you know, they're like, up here, and the pastor's like down here, founding member. I don't know when that ends, but somewhere generationally, I guess that ends. But And we were just constantly just at odds. And then several years went by, actually had left that church, and I was asked to come back and do a funeral for him. And... We, didn't, we don't do wakes, but we do get together and eat after funerals oftentimes in that tradition. And the story started coming out about how horrendous a life this person had led. And the, or, the systemic structure this, this, of the church, um, he was one of the leaders. And yet it came out that he had been abusing his wife for years. But how did I not know that? 
How does a person gain leadership within a church that would treat someone like that? It's a very uncomfortable realization that someone who knows a whole lot of Bible can miss a whole lot of Jesus. And is it good news to the person that's on the receiving end of that abuse? Does Jesus in that moment feel like, oh, this is someone who has freedom for me. This is someone who's going to release me from slavery. This is someone who's going to take away my anger. When someone who claims obedience and are doing all these good things for him would also rear back and just give you a right cross from time to time. How do we have that? In this world, and I believe one of the reasons we do is because we've made this transactional and it's supposed to be transformational. So how do we, how do we understand this? I think one of the things we have to do is we have to come to an agreement somewhere within our own hearts. What does it mean to be saved? Is it to pray a prayer and to be baptized and to come to church and Is it to read our Bible so many times a week? Is it to give so much money to ministries or nonprofits? Is it amount of time we're supposed to volunteer with Widow's Harvest? Are we supposed to go to every small group opportunity? Are we supposed to, you know, just be able to 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 quote scripture at the drop of a hat? Is it the number of people that accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior because we've talked to them? What what does it mean to be saved? And how do we know that we're experiencing the thing that is supposed to be this good news? Because the elder brother was doing all of the things. And yet he was lost. I don't want to be a person who does all the right things and is lost. And I certainly don't want to communicate to others what it means to be saved when that's not being saved from anything. We look at the younger brother, we... We receive salvation when we realize there are things we need to be saved from. I think the most basic understanding of what what it means to want Jesus is to say, I'm not doing good. This is not good for me. We wake up and we look in the mirror and we say, "I I know what other people say when they see that face, but I know deep within me I'm still enslaved to all this stuff struggling to do all these things it's the recognition i have destructive patterns in my life i have habits that have formed that are not good and they not only hurt others they hurt me i think one of the ways we embrace the gospel is we root out those things that are destructive within us the older brother had destructive patterns he didn't think he was doing anything wrong because look at all the good I'm doing and I'm not leaving and I'm not spending any inheritance on prostitutes. But yet within his heart, he was angry. Now, is the point that it's wrong to be angry? I don't think Jesus goes around saying it's just wrong to be angry, so don't be angry. Here's, here's what I want you to do. If you're married in the room and you get in a heated moment with your spouse... I want you to look at them and say, hey, just don't be angry. I want you to come back and report how that goes, okay? You're probably going to come by yourself, to be honest. But I want you to come back and tell me how that goes. Any more that when you're angry, that you can just tell yourself, Mark, just stop being mad. Oh, 
well, that worked. I'm not mad anymore. Like, has that ever worked for anyone? Seriously. So what if the good news of Jesus Christ depended on Jesus walking up to you or to me and saying, stop being mad? Like, would you go away going, praise the Lord, that is such good news? Or would you go away going, what? What is that all about? (laughs) Or is he looking at his angry son and saying, that anger is going to consume you. You feel so justified and so righteous that it's going to tear your soul apart. The relationships that you have, it's going to end those. And the kingdom that I so desperately want you to experience, it's going to be out of your grasp because you will become consumed with anger. There's something about the good news that deals with anger But it's not the doing, it's the seeing the world differently and being transformed. We receive salvation when we realize that we're struggling with anxiety and despair and we need hope and a belief in a positive future. We receive salvation when we realize that we're just looking for the kind of hope that it's not on my own shoulders to make happen. Someone else has taken the responsibility to provide that hope. We see the good news as a promise not to burn in hell. Instead of living the way Jesus lived, miss the fact that not only will we miss the heaven that we are looking for, but also that we are already burning now what if hell is how you feel every time you think about that person and you want to wring their neck what if that is hell right now right here what if hell is a marriage where one spouse continually consumes the other and they are only there to make their life better What if that is hell? It's certainly hell for one, but Jesus would say it's hell for both. What if hell is when we hold and harbor bitterness and we refuse to forgive? And instead of Jesus saying, you know what, if you want heaven where you get to walk down streets of gold and you get to go canoeing in the crystal sea and you get to have a mansion, what if he says, you know what, You know what is so more beautiful than a crystal sea? It is when you let go of the bitterness and you forgive. See, in that kind of a scenario, you can have heaven or hell right now. And it's a choice that we make which we pursue. There are absolutely times I get angry and I have to tell myself, stop being angry, but it takes a while. And it usually requires me to shift my perspective on whatever is making me angry. Or it takes someone else coming to me saying they're angry with me because I've probably done the exact same thing to someone else. What if hell is when we don't forgive? What if hell is when we invite a third party into our marriages? 
What if hell is when we communicate that our value is in our sexuality and not in our humanity, as most of our kids are growing up learning? Your value is in your sexuality. Your value is in the ability to present yourself as something to be consumed by another. What if we communicate, or what if hell is when we just need revenge? Or what if hell is when we can't get by without something else, like drugs or alcohol or TV or social media or the next thing that all my friends have but I don't have yet? What if that is hell? Our view of hell burning in this fiery pit, that is, that is born from uh, literature outside of Scripture. I mean, our picture of the devil is from Paradise Lost and Inferno. Dante and Milton have taught us more about hell for most of us than the Scriptures have. But they make good books and they make good movies and great costumes for Halloween. But what if hell is simply an inability or an unwillingness to love others as we love ourselves? Or to love God? What if hell is when we are desperate for attention while refusing to give attention to those who really need it? What if hell is when we don't serve because it gets in the way of our free time? As we look at the story of the cross, as we look at what is this good news, it is such a mistake to think it's something that happens when you die. You've got a whole bunch of tests as to whether you're going to get it. But instead, as a way of doing life right now, and then as you go out from this place and you go to work and you go home, you hang out with your friends, what if the communicating of the good news is, a, is, is just showing how Jesus has freed us from the things that is enslaving them? This is still an invitation. It's not just God's judgment. But this way of viewing people, it enslaves you. It enslaves me. The story of the cross is an upside-down way of viewing life. The world, God, and each other. Salvation becomes your awareness that there is a God who loves you and is entreating you to step in to rescue you from everything that you desperately want to be rescued from. Good news is that it's a rescue. And it doesn't matter how you portray it, if a person doesn't feel a need for rescue, they are not going to receive the good news. They're not going to do it. It doesn't matter how hot we make hell. They're not going to do it. You have to feel a need for rescue. Some of you have read a story that is circulating about Matthew Perry, who passed away a couple of weeks ago, and some of you older folks think that the greatest era of TV was Friends, and then your kids think, yeah, it's all right. He said this, if you do follow the cast or whatever, um, you know that he struggled with a lot of addiction issues. So I copied this... Um, I'm just going to read it. 
in his memoir, actor Matthew Perry detailed 14 stints in rehab, 15 stomach surgeries, and more than 60 attempts at detox. He also talked about a powerful encounter with God. After hitting rock bottom, Perry describes reaching out in desperation. God, please help me, I whispered. Show me that you are here. God, please help me. As I kneeled, the light slowly began to get bigger and bigger until it was so big that it encompassed the entire room. What was happening and why was I starting to feel better? He says, I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry, that shoulder-shaking kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all was being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time I had prayed for the right thing. Help. In other parts of his memoir, he talks about the primary prayer he prayed to God when he was younger, and that was, make me famous. He's contrasting that prayer with this one, help. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is help. It is freedom from pain, discouragement, hopelessness. A, a lifetime of bad choices, the fear of terrible news, the anxiety that says this generation is the most anxious generation in modern history. There's freedom from anxiety. How is this a free gift? We take communion together. Jesus Christ continued the covenant that God made with Abraham when he walked both sides of the blood covenant where he said, I am making a promise to you. You are my people. I am going to be with you and you are going to be with me. We are going to redeem the whole world. Jesus continues that by saying, this, this freedom that you're looking for, this deliverance from this beast that seeks to devour you, you're not going to get there on your own, but I can help you get there. So Jesus demonstrating unconditional love of the Father and this great willingness to sacrifice himself as a picture that for us to love others means self-sacrifice, not consumption. It means that we invest in others, not look for ways to get them to invest in us. It means that we look for ways to bring peace rather than looking for ways to inflame division. It means that the things that bring death in this world, we counter by demonstrating what life really is all about. We take communion because Jesus told us to do that. He said, I want you to know that you are so loved, you are so valued, and this burden of overcoming death to life, to return to the place that you were created to be, is going to require a death. He says, I'm taking that burden from you. You could absolutely say, you got to do it. As soon as you want this good news, just find a cross, get nailed to it. 
And one day, maybe you can enter into the kingdom. But instead, he said, no, I want you to experience this right here and right now, and so I'm taking this from you. So he allowed himself to be arrested and tortured and nailed to a cross. The free gift that is received in faith. It is an opportunity for you to say, this is what I want. This is what I want my life to look like. I want to change the way I live. I want to change the way I feel. I want to change the way I approach people. I want to let go of the things that I feel absolutely trapped by. And I want to be right with Christ. And I want to experience what this true freedom is. I want to pray with you. Then going to take communion. The way we're going to do that today is... Only the what, second time we, second or maybe third time we've done it in here. So I'm just going to ask you to come to the middle and come down. And Jimmy and Donna are going to be down here to serve. And then as you receive the bread and the cup, if you'll just go around the outside so we don't have a traffic jam. The way we do communion here is, is that we will take the bread and break it and dip it into the juice to demonstrate his body that is broken for us and his blood that is shed for us. And they're going to hand you that. You can take a napkin if you would like. And as you walk back to your seat, or if you want to go back to your seat and take communion there, just I find it becomes more meaningful to me when I don't just go through the motion of getting it and eating it and singing the song, but instead I have just a moment of saying, Jesus, thank you for the life that you're giving me. Times when I confess my sins, not because I'm afraid he's going to smite me, but because I know that they are still enslaving me and he wants me to be free from those things. And when I confess them and I commit to him, I've just got to find another way. I've got to do this another way. He is faithful to help us find the other way. Have a moment, you and God. You're in a room full of people, yet God is here with us and you can have a moment with him. So I want to pray with you and I want you to know no matter where you are in life, no matter if you're getting bad news after bad news after bad news, if you're dealing with fear or anxiety, if your hope has been dashed across the rocks, there is good news. If you're looking back at your life and you see a big laundry list of bad choices, you're only one choice away from a better life. He's not holding that list against you. This is a whole new life. He'll go on and describe it as you can't, can't pour new wine into old wineskins. You've got to be completely transformed. You're a completely new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. This is good news. Now, I know that in any of these conversations, it's easy to read some of this stuff, and you can absolutely come... Um, through this understanding of the prodigal son and, and move towards kind of a bend where it just says, well, I guess that means no matter what you do, you're saved. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think the scriptures bear that out as true. And one of the uncomfortable questions I asked last week was, where does grace end? I intend to struggle through talking about that next week because it is a struggle for me at times to come to a final conclusion about all of these scriptures. But I do feel do believe that I have a better understanding than I ever have on how grace and judgment fit. What does, what does that look like? How do we understand that and what we just <coughs> talked about? I think I have a better understanding than I ever have in my life about that. So I want to 
I want to struggle through that with you next week. Let's pray.